Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. I believe that we're on the cusp of our generation's greatest revelation, which is the undoing of Adam. Christ, Christ did not just become our behavioral sins. Christ became our fall. He didn't become our actions to undo our actions, but leave us fallen. He undid and destroyed and eliminated the fall entirely, which was the source of every behavioral sin, past, present, and future. Okay, I know we're starting out early, but y'all just stick with me. Jesus became the darkest of dark so that you and I could become the lightest of light. Christ did not come to give us a magic prayer that if we said it, we would get to float away. He came to set us right again, here and now, as the first fruits of his kingdom coming here and now. Colossians 1.27 says this, Christ in us, or Christ in all, is the hope of glory. That is the hope of glory, Christ in us. Okay, at the heart of theology, in all time, from beginning to now, at the heart of it is the reality of two ideas, and it's either separation or union. So this is what we're going to talk about today. At the heart of every single theological topic, east, west, past, present, and future, is one idea, separation or union. Or say like this, either separated or not separated at all. And as I'm about to read this, you cannot have both. And this is where we're going to rub into as we go through some of this today, and honestly where we are right now, is you cannot have the reality of separation and union at the same time. And this is the balancing act that we've tried to have in the West particularly for the past, well, for the past thousand years since we split East and West, is that we've tried to see all of humanity as separated, yet all of humanity as joined in the death of Christ. Either all of humanity was joined in the death of Christ and reconciled, as Romans 5 says, on the, at the cross, on, on Jesus, with the death of Jesus, or we were all separate and we're still separate and we're trying to work our way into it. You cannot have both. And I think what we're going to have to make the decision in as a family, well, not as a family, you made that decision here, but what, what you and I are going to have to make the decision um, over in the West particularly is, are we going to view God through the lens of separation, as we always have, or are we going to view God through the lens of union, which we have never done? So here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> we in the West have made separation the root of all we believe about God. And here's the proof of it. Around 1054, the year 1054 A.D., the church split into East and West. So before 1054 A.D., there was one church worldwide. Of course, they had different views on different things, but there was one church. Around 1054 A.D., the church split east and west. We're the west. The church in the east, obviously, is the church of the east. And we believe very, 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 very differently about everything. Very differently. So about 1054, the church split. Most have considered, I would probably consider this as well, St. Augustine of Hippo, the father of the Western church, which is us. However, many theologians have also acknowledged 
Augustine's affinity for two things, Greek philosophy, particularly Plato, Greek philosophy, and Roman law. Those are the two major influencers on the Western church, Greek philosophy, Roman law. And, uh, and let, me just, let me just say something real quick. How many of you, do you know the first time I ever heard Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? The, the first time I ever heard that sermon was in a middle school history class. Anybody else? Did any of y'all ever hear that in school? Okay, yeah. And I was thinking about this this morning. This is a totally random thought, thinking about this this morning. We, that we are, now, this was not a Christian school. It was a public school. So the announcement that we are making, let me say it like this, the announcement we're allowing our culture to make on behalf of God is we're all sinners in the hands of a really angry God. I never heard um, anything from Athanasius in that class. I never heard anything from the Bible. But we did hear sinners in the We studied for, for a week the message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Here's one problem. Uh, that doesn't line up with the Bible, number one, that message. And, uh, and number two, I think really the more accurate sermon would be God in the hand of angry sinners. Right? God didn't kill Jesus. Right? 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 Although that's what we have been taught. That God spent his wrath. The wrath of God is an amazing thing. The wrath of God said, that does not belong in them, so I'm going to get on the inside of them. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm going to get on the inside of them and remove what does not belong. That is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is against our sin or our fall. The wrath of God is not against us who lived in sin or in a fall. So, so when God places judgment on sin, that does not mean people in sin. He places judgment on sin within people, which is why we can't view the world as awful, but we can view sin in the world as bad because the world is good. We do it like this. When Veda does something she's not supposed to do, our daughter, when she does something, we do not say, Veda, stop doing this. Let me, let me, just, let me just chase this rabbit for a second. Me and Veda went to the zoo Friday, and if this is your parenting style, please forgive me, but if you're, uh, I, I mean, so, or don't. So we went to the zoo Friday, and, uh, and they... They do this thing, great salesman, where they have these bubble wines at the front. Now, every kid is going to walk in and want a bubble wine. And because they want a bubble wine, they're going to charge 50 bucks for it. So, so we walk in, and there's bubbles going, what's up, guys? Bubbles going everywhere, okay? And, uh, and as we do this, Veda sees them, and she's playing in them. And then as I'm, like, I'm watching this, now, Veda, she knows. Like, we don't do the whole thing of, like, if you're this, you get this. We don't do that, okay? However... These, these, this, this parent walked in with their kid, and it was his family, and the kid wanted a bubble one. And the mom said, all right, you'll get a bubble one at the end if you are good. And the kid was like, oh, okay. And so the whole day, I'm assuming, the kid worked its way into being really good so that he could earn the reward at the end of the bubble one. This is ingrained in our culture, that if you do this, you get this which is why the cross does not make sense and why we had to mangle it in Western theology and Western Greek philosophy in order for it to make sense in our thinking. That's wrong. We need to take this and say, it doesn't matter what I think. 
My thinking has to submit to this, not this submit to my thinking. And that's the bridge that we have never crossed. You know what I'm saying? In our culture, it's do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and you get this. This says it don't matter what you do. In fact, you were doing the opposite of what you should have been doing, and you still got it anyway. So instead, we took this and said, well, that doesn't make sense. So let's make it like this. Jesus came to die for all the people who repeat a prayer and check off all the lists and be a part of a church and be a member of a church, and then they get to float away in heaven while everybody else gets to burn because that fits in our Western theology. But then what do we do with verses like Christ reconciled the world to himself? So then we have to start making translations translate things slightly off so that it keeps pushing our agenda. And you have people and generations growing up being afraid primarily of the Father because we see the Father as the one who beat the snot out of Jesus so that he wouldn't have to beat the snot out of us. Right? And at best, at best, he was apathetic towards us. At best, the Father was obligated to love us at best. And we see Jesus as the good guy who came on our behalf because he felt sorry for us, and we see the Holy Spirit as the one who is swirling in beneath, in between, trying to keep everybody together so that this thing doesn't blow apart. And we, we make the power of the Holy Spirit about knocking people out We make the power of the Holy Spirit about making people bilingual, which all of that does. Absolutely. And I love that. I was praying in, in, praying in the Spirit in my office five minutes before I came out here. So, I mean, I love that. But the Holy Spirit job is to make the love of God known to us like we have never known before. And if we get tongues and if we get healing and if we get power, but we don't have a clue what it means that God is love, it does not matter. Amen. Greek philosophy and Roman law are the two major influencers of the Western church. Greek philosophy, I'm going to just give you a little history lesson, so if you don't care about this, then it's fine. Greek philosophy was a philosophy of separation. Did anybody get taught Plato in, in school? Yeah, everybody did, of course, because this is where we are. <clears throat> we'll teach Plato, we won't teach about Jesus. Uh, okay. It, even if Jesus isn't the Son of God, my Lord, like which He is, but even if He's not, it's that's the part of history you probably should teach. That time itself reversed because of this man, like you know what I'm saying. But we'll teach Plato. Okay, so Plato, Greek philosophy, Greek philosophy is a philosophy of separation. So this this is what Greek philosophy taught. And as I'm saying this, I want you to think through how similar this sounds to what we believe about God. Ready? This is not the Bible. This is Greek philosophy Plato, straight from the book. They taught that of a separation between the physical and the spiritual. Plato did. Separation between the material and the non-material. <clears throat> separation between the have and the have-nots. We would say it like this. Those who are in the club and those who are not in the club. The member, the church, whatever you want to call it. Separation. The separation of those enlightened and those in the dark. Separation of eternal bliss, what we would call heaven, 
and the physical earth. That's Greek philosophy. Now, does that not sound real familiar? Right? I mean, you don't have to like that. Yeah, that's, that's, that wasn't even really a question. It does sound familiar. Everything's separated. They believe nothing in the earth or the physical was good. Again, not Christian, Greek philosophy. Nothing in the earth or the physical was good, and that the whole goal of life for Plato, you ready? The entire goal of life is to escape this physical body and this material earth and go into what they called eternal bliss. Hello? Does that sound familiar? Okay, now just, just to reiterate, I did not read a Bible verse. That's directly from Plato, the Greek philosopher, that quote. Okay. Roman law was extremely strict. If you've seen The Chosen, has anybody seen The Chosen? You can kind of get a picture of this if you have seen this. What's up, Kyrie? So Roman law was extremely strict, and it was based on extreme loyalty to a system. If you get out of line, you are punished, maybe killed. For the Romans, listen to this. For the Romans, life was a privilege that you worked to keep. Not a gift that you could not lose. One more time, because I know everybody's just getting here. Y'all thought we were doing worship first, and we're not. So y'all just hang with me. Okay? For, for, for Roman law, life was a privilege that you worked to keep. If you get out of line, you lose the privilege. Life was not something that was a gift to you that you could not lose. Here's the issue. That's exactly what this teaches. In him was life, and his life was light to all mankind. I'm about to read it, so you'll just hang with me. Again, does all this sound familiar? It does. We are at a point in history in the West where Yahweh has found a group of people who are willing to pay the price to say, wait a minute, something is not right here. I've, let me just, I feel, I feel apostolic in my calling lately. And, uh, and I'm about to make a lot of shifts where this pen is going to do more damage than I ever believed the sword of spiritual warfare could ever do in my past. And yours too. A pen in your hand is going to do more damage in our culture than any sword you could swing against the devil. Because I believe when I'm writing this stuff, and this isn't saying anything about me, but I believe when I'm writing this stuff, I'm laying the blueprint of what the, what the cosmos are going to submit to. You, and you too. Uh, the Lord whispered this to me this morning. I'm, I'm making a cup of coffee. And he said, everybody in the church, so Kyle, where's Kyle? Kyle, is anybody else coffee, make coffee for a living? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I had this thought this morning, and I thought about you, but when you're making, and I say this a lot, but, but when you're making a cup of coffee, 
you making that cup of coffee is telling the cosmos this is what you're going to submit to. Not the coffee, but the frequency of the one making the cup of coffee. When you're working at your job that you hate and you want to quit and you think it's insignificant, when you're working at that job, every single breath you take and move you make is telling the cosmos this is what you're going to be. All of it. But we don't believe that if we believe in separation. If we believe that the church and the secret place is where I do my time with the Lord, and then this is where I'm in the world but not of the world. Like, you know what I'm saying? Now, well, brother, be in the world, not of the world. But you've got to be in the world. What? We say, well, like, you know what I mean? Brother, be in the world but not of the world. And we thought that meant show up to church, never drink, never cuss, never do all this stuff, make sure you have perfect attendance, and make sure you tithe, but never go to the bar, never go do this, never go to pregame football games because you know what happens there. And we separate ourselves from the world, and we call it being in the world, not of the world. That is being away from the world and not of the world. And if I'm being honest with you, that's actually being away from the world and being just like the world. Is that not what they do? They will know your mind. Man, Lord, Lord, Lord. Look. Y'all ready? See? See? You ready? Let me, let me just say this. Let me just say this. I honor, I honor our, uh, our spiritual fathers in the past. I do. Absolutely. However, however, um, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a move right now in the church because the church is just vacillating trying to find her identity in the West right now. Trying its best to find her identity. And because of that, you have so many extremes. So let me, let me just talk about two, because I feel like I'm called to dismantle these in my lifetime. Uh, number one is Reformed theology. Amen. Number one, and I'm speaking of this, right? Reformed theology. The, the idea that some are elected to float away and some are elected to burn forever. You know what I'm saying? That's Plato, and these are brilliant people when it comes to Plato and Greek philosophy. Brilliant. But we better not be labeling this as that. And that's what we've done. It's a fad in the church right now that the Lord is dealing with. It's a fad. But the idea, and I've seen a quote lately, doesn't matter from who, but the, the, the idea that, this is the example. I saw this this week and I threw up. Um, in order, listen, in order to teach grace, there's the quote, in order to teach grace, you must first, first, show every single person how sorry they are. And then you can teach grace effectively. You were, you were bad, you were terrible, you spit in the face of God. Yeah, he knew that. He was the one that died on the cross, and we spit right in his face. And you know what he said? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. But it is finished. So that's, so that's number one. That is, that is nonsense. Number two is the idea that we're going to signs and wonders our way into this. If, if we pray for every sick person on planet Earth, but we don't make the necessary steps to knowing who Yahweh is, therefore knowing who we are, number one, we're going to have to fake everybody being healed because we ain't going to carry power anyway. 
And number two, even if we do get people healed, we'll leave them healed and still lost. Because we're lost. What Yahweh's doing is getting us to the place where he's saying, just hold up. Like, here's your word. You got a word for somebody? Here's the word. God is love. And when you master that word, maybe you'll begin to inherit other words. But what we have done is we moved to the place where we feel like we got to get a word for people, we got to lay hands on people, and we got to look just like John G. Lake. Okay. When, when Yahweh's moving us into a place, I don't want, I want to like Jesus. And Jesus went to the woman at the well and said, did not say which leg's longer than the other. He went to the woman at the well and said, I know everything you've done, but I'm about to become your last husband. That set a city free. The other sends people into a lifestyle of having to fake abracadabra because that's what defines their relationship with Jesus. And I'm telling you, when we get our relationship with Jesus defined by who we are and who he is, we're going to transition into what no eye has seen and no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended. You talk about cancer being healed. Cancer will run from those who are so solidified in their identity, they actually do what Jesus did in greater works, which is not the ministry. Jesus knew who he was greater than anybody on planet Earth. That is the greater work. You will do all the works that I do and greater works. Well, what works did he did? He knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, if you've seen me, you've seen him. How many of us in this room would walk into a room and believe with everything in us, because this is reality, and this is what I get in trouble for a lot and don't care, but this is the reality. How many of us walk into a room and can look somebody in the eye and say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Well, 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 no, no, there's no separation Prove it. All right, here we go. I'm about to just throw this message everywhere. You ready? Let, let me just, 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 y'all weren't ever taught this. So let me just read this. John 1. Here we go. In the very beginning, the living expression, with, no, 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 NIV. Let me read from the NIV. Passion takes a little too much right there. I love the Passion translation, but I just need it raw. John 1. John 1. Y'all good? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Face-to-face union in the beginning, before time. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, you ready for this? Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Everybody say all. Thanks, Will. (laughs) The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, cannot comprehend it or understand it. Let me stop right here. In the beginning was the Word, before time. With God was God. Spin. Trinity. But through Him... All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Stop. Through him or in him. In him. All things were made. You and I breathing right now, this air is in Christ. We are in Christ right now. Everything in creation exists, not apart from him, in him. 
through him. That's where we find our, any existence in creation, which every single thing you lay your eyes on exists. Right? I mean, okay, yeah. It all exists. Nothing's a delusion so, except for the lies that you tell yourself. It's a lie. But everything that you see is real. Therefore, it is in Christ. One more time, because this is brand new stuff for us. In him was life. Everybody say in. Not apart. Not apart, not different, not separate, not another. In him was life, which means every single human being, past, present, and future, existed in Christ. Not just humans, every single thing in creation, past, present, and future, exist in Christ. Not apart, in. When God and the Trinity make the decision to spin us out of their union, when they make that decision, I've taught this for the past few weeks, they did not create a whole nother dimension to place us because every single thing was in God, all of it. So what he did was, in himself, place us within the space within himself. Not another. Are y'all getting me? Like, I, this is so hard to explain, but it's really easy. So you and I existed in God, in Christ, before we ever took a breath. How was that possible? Because everything, every thought, every word, every breath, all of it exists in him. There is... So there is no, let me say all this, there is no possibility of separation. It's not just a theological statement to say we were never separated from God ever and we are not right now. That is not just a theological statement that the East makes that the West denies. It's reality. If we were created apart from God, there is room for us to be separated. If we're created in God, it does not matter how far you run, you're still in God. Well, oh, brother, I don't know about that. You know what I'm saying? And this is, this is the decision that our culture is going to have to make. Are we going to keep going down this trail of Western American theology, or are we going to go down the trail of knowing and being known? As for me and my house, that's where we're going. Y'all with me? Okay. Let's keep going. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify uh, concerning that light, Jesus, so that through him all, say all, might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light, now just listen to this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. This is religion today. We're in Christ, and we don't even recognize Christ. How can you be in something and not even recognize what you're in? But this is it. This is when you go, when you go through the drive-thru, and the drive-thru lady smiles at you, and you're just like, man, that just made my day. Julie, Tuesday night, somebody gave you a milkshake, or just pushed you ahead in line to get a milkshake. Am I right? Because uh, you'd waited a long time. 
Yeah. So anyway, Julia was highly affected by that. Highly affected by that. Okay. So you could say, so, so you could say, right, yeah, don't cry. But you could say that that was just like a, that was just like, man, that was really great. Or you could say that if this is in Christ, I just saw an image of what she's in. She may not even know she's in. That she is, listen, the true light gives light to everyone. He was in the world that was made through him, but the world did not recognize him. That's what that is. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of a natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, this verse, Lord, I'm so far ahead in my notes, so I'm going to just have to backtrack a little bit. The, listen to this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it in Greek. So your Bibles may not say it like this and it's because they were translated wrong. So I'm going to read it in Greek. John 1, 14. Ready? The Word became human nature, flesh, sarks, and made His dwelling. If any of your Bibles say among us, you need to take a pen and mark it out. Wrong. That is nowhere near the translation of the Word. Here's what it is. Because remember... If we have a theology of separation, he's dwelling among us. And if he's dwelling among us, I have the opportunity to be separate of he who is among us. But if it says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling in us. That's the translation. The word, and actually, let me read like this. The word became human nature and made his tabernacle in us. That's the Greek. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, I'm going to skip ahead. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who, him, who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father who has made him known. That's what John 1 says. That might be the most significant piece of your entire Bible. If you take John 1 verse 1 through 18 out, none of the rest of the Bible makes sense. And, but this, John is saying, most scholars believe, a lot of scholars believe, that John wrote his gospel later on, seeing that the church had started going down a pharisaical religious path. And seeing this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their gospel as an historical account of what Jesus did. That's the reason they wrote it. So that we could go back and read this, and we know Jesus did this, and this, and this, and this, and that proves he's the Son of God. John wrote his gospel seeing that they had taken all of what Jesus did but did not marry what Jesus did with who Jesus was and started going down a path of doing. And John writes, in the beginning was the word. And he says, we're not going to, we're not, and if you read John's gospel, it is vastly different than the rest. And the reason is, is John writes his gospel to tell us who Jesus was. The other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, invite us into what our life should look like now that we've encountered Jesus. John invites us into what our lives look like now that we are in union with Jesus. This is why John writes this. That's why he writes. See, the, the closest thing we get to this is Genesis 1 in the beginning. 
John says, no, we got to go way further back than that. Before the beginning was the word. It says in the beginning in most of your translations. What it should say is before there was time, the word was with God face to face. So let me get back to my notes. We're at a point in history in the West where Yahweh has found a group of people who are willing to pay the price to say something is not right. And if I could sum it up into one statement, here is what Yahweh is doing. You ready? Right now in me, and I think he's doing this in us. He is tearing down anything that we have believed that grew from the lie of separation and reconstructing it on the foundation of union. This is what he's doing. I said it last week, but I'll expound upon it today, that the gospel message to humanity is because of Jesus. And I made this statement last week, and I know it hit some of y'all real weird, and I left it like that. I told y'all, I I think I mentioned this Tuesday night, I leave stuff in my sermons um, as like little gems that I hope you guys find along the week, so along the way. So uh, this is one of those. I didn't expand upon it because I wanted you to really burn with it this week. So, because it made some of y'all mad. You ready for this? Here's my statement. The, the gospel message to humanity is, because of Jesus, with that caveat, because of Jesus, you are not God's enemy, and you never were. You are not separated from God, and you never were. Well, Josh, what about Colossians? Well, here we go. Colossians 1. You ready? Read this last week. Y'all just hang with me. You don't have to turn there. Colossians 1, verse 22. Here's what it says. Even though you were once distant from him, living in the shadows of your evil thoughts and actions, he reconnected you back to himself. Now, here's what the NIV says. The NIV says this. Colossians 1, It says this. Uh, 22. Um, he's reckoned, or excuse me, 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Hold up. See, that says we were enemies with God. No, 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 no. Hold on a second. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, now why is he saying that in your minds? Here's what he's saying. He's saying you thought because of your fall that you were enemies against God but you were not. It was a delusion. In your minds, you lived as if you were God's enemy, and the whole time God was reconciling you back to himself while you were acting like you were God's enemy. You once were enemies in your mind, but then it keeps going. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. In all of these stories in Luke 15, and I'm about to read Luke 15, in every single one of these stories, the identity of what got lost, you ready? Here's a new piece. Was determined and solidified before they were ever lost. So with that, Luke 15, Luke 15, I'm going to read this story. Jesus is talking about the lost. 
And he says this, Luke 15, y'all should have this memorized by now, I've read it so much. <clears throat> says this, so many dishonest tax collectors and other notorious sinners, okay, so we're talking about, talking about sinners, often gathered around to listen as Jesus taught the people. This raised concerns, concerns with the Jewish religious leaders and experts of the law. Sinners recognize, read, sinners, dishonest tax collectors, the lowest of the low, can see this man is who he says he is. The religious leaders are plotting on how to kill him because they don't have a clue. You tell me which ones were lost. I mean, seriously. This raised concerns with the Jewish religious leaders and experts of the law indignant. They grumbled and complained, saying, Look at how this man associates with all these notorious sinners and welcomes them all to come to him. Huh? Like, right? Even in the old law, they were called to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the old law. Problem is, they didn't consider these sinners their neighbor because they didn't look like him. In response, Jesus gave them this illustration. There we go. There once was a shepherd with a hundred lambs, but one of his lambs wandered away and was lost. Okay? Before he was lost, what was this sheep? His lamb. So the shepherd left the 99 lambs out in the open field and searched in the wilderness for that one lost lamb. He did not stop until he finally found it. With exuberant joy, he raised it up and placed it on his shoulders, carrying it back with cheerful delight. Returning home, he called all his friends and neighbors together and said, Let's have a party and celebrate with me the return of my lost lamb. My lost lamb. It wandered away, but I found it and brought it home. Jesus is talking about the notorious sinners. And actually, in reading this, in reading this, I wonder if that's who Jesus was talking about. I, let, me just, let me just give you a little... I wonder if Jesus, see, we've read this all along, and maybe if Jesus is writing this about the notorious tax collectors, the evil ones that love Jesus. They believe he's the Son of God. Believe with your mouth, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe with your heart, God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. They obviously believe Jesus was Lord because they were coming to him, listen to his teachings. The religious leaders did not believe he was Lord. Y'all with me? So, so I wonder if the lost lamb that Jesus is talking about is not the notorious sinner sitting in front of him. It's the ones that believe they're found, that they're actually so lost, they put up such a mask in front of them, they don't even know they're lost anymore. This speaks huge to me, though, because if I'm being honest, I would love nothing more than for Yahweh to take a big hand and sweep across America and blow every ounce of religion out of America right now. That would do us a big favor. But he's seeking until he finds them too. Jesus gave them another parable. There once, and I can't wait for this one. There once was a woman who had 10 valuable silver, silver coins 
When she lost one of them, she swept her entire house diligently, searching every corner of her house for that one lost coin. When she finally found it, she gathered all her friends and neighbors for a celebration, telling them, come and celebrate me with me. I had lost my precious silver coin, but now I found it. That's the way God responds every time one lost sinner repents and turns to him. Repents and turns to him. Repent, changing how you think, coming to your senses, agreeing with how God agrees. That's what that means. So repents and turns to him. He says to all of his angels, let's have a joyous celebration, that one who was lost I have found. Okay, verse 11. Then Jesus said, there once was a father with two sons. Now, Lord, 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 help me not cry. Jesus is now talking about these laws, and now he's bringing in two. One son who is completely lost, one son who is in proximity and doesn't know that he's actually lost. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me the share of your estate that belongs to me? I wish you were dead, is what he's essentially saying. So the father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. I think it's really interesting that the the second son did not ask for his inheritance. Um, But I'm not going to chase that rabbit right now, maybe later. So the father went ahead and distributed to both of them their inheritance. Shortly afterward... Um, let me, I will, I will. This is the cross. This is the cross. There was the religious ones, the religious ones go and they kill this guy. They don't want anything to do with him. The sinners are also playing a role in him dying because they're under the Roman law. The sinners are saying, let's just go ahead and get it over with. Can he just die? The other ones, the other ones are still looking for a Messiah and they just want to get this thing out of the way. When Jesus dies, he gives both the sinners and the religious ones their inheritance, whether or not they ask for it. So this is, this is kind of what he's talking about. Shortly afterward, the younger son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. So many people know exactly what that's like. With everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in the land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed pigs. The son was so famished, he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized, comes to his senses, what he was doing, and he thought, there are many workers at my father's house who have all the food that they want with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feed, hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back to my father's house and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned. I'll never be worthy to be your son, but please just treat me like a slave. Salah, right? So the young son set off for home. From a long distance away, something happens he was not looking for. His father saw him coming. And when he noticed he was dressed as a beggar, great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son. This is the wrath of God right here, if you want to know what it's like. Great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son, who was returning home. The father raced out to meet him, swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, kissed him over and over with tender love. The son then said, Father, I was wrong. 
I've sinned against you. I can never deserve to be called your son. Just let me be. And the father interrupted and said, son, you're home. Here's the wrath. Turning to his servants, the father said, bring me the best robe, my very own, and I will place it on his shoulders. Bring me the ring, the seal of sonship, and I will put it on his finger. Bring out the best shoes you can find for my son. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate for this beloved son of mine was once dead and now he's alive again. Once he was lost, now he is found and everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. Now the older son who was working the field when his brother returned and as he was working the field, excuse me, and as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing. So he called over one of the servants and asked what's going on. The servant said, it's your younger brother. He's returned. Your father's throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. And the older son became angry and refused to go to the celebration. So his father came out and pleaded with him, come and enjoy the feast with us. And the son said, father, I've been working like a slave for you, performing every duty you've asked as a faithful son. Can you hear the Pharisees in this? We've done every, we performed every task of the law. All of them. And you got these sinners sitting in front of you that you're willing to sit with and eat with and do life with. We've done all the work. And they're mad that the sinners are getting an access to something that they know is right, but their religion refuses to allow them to acknowledge that it's right. I've been performing everything that you've asked. I've never once disobeyed you. I followed the law to a T. But you've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. Never once have you even given me a goat that I could feast on and celebrate with my friends like he's doing now. But look at this son of yours. He comes back after wasting everything on prostitutes and reckless living. And here you are throwing a great feast to celebrate for him. And the father said, my son, you are always with me by my side. Everything I have is yours to enjoy whenever you want. It's yours. It's only right to celebrate like this and be overjoyed because this brother of yours, and I'm about to point something out. This brother of yours was once dead and gone, but now he is alive and back with us again. He was lost, now he is found. This brother of yours, this brother. If my brother, Matt, was lost and he came home found, I would be just excited as anybody else that he's home because he is my brother. Right? Amen. So, my brother being lost or my sister being lost brings me no joy and it sure does not bring me fury when they come home. But the reason why we reject people in the church is because we don't want brothers and sisters to come home and we don't want brothers and sisters to be found because it would mess up the system. And I'm telling you today, the system needs to be messed up. I think the key to on earth as it is in heaven is right outside those doors of people who maybe haven't been in a church in years, if not their whole life. How, what does it mean for us to be able to sit down and teach God is love to somebody who's never heard otherwise? You, you, you know what I'm saying? What does it mean? And let me say it like this. How easy is it for us to teach God is love when somebody who has been rejected by the whole system comes into the house, and when they come in, we do not say, you can't be here because of this. Instead, we say, you're home. God is love. 
I mean, this is like Judas betraying Jesus after Jesus just scrubbed his feet. That's what I, I heard this recently. It, it, I, don't, I don't know if it was the whole betraying Jesus thing that caused Judas to do what he did in the aftermath. I think Judas was plagued by the thought that the man he just sold to be crucified scrubbed his feet as a slave moments before. Yet this is what Jesus is doing in our culture right now. He's saying, you may not hear the truth, but I'm going to scrub and scrub and scrub until, this is what he says, after the feeding of the 5,000, what does he say to the disciples? He feeds the 5,000, he sends them out with baskets, and he says, gather the leftovers, make sure not one thing is missed. Gather every piece. What is he saying in that moment? He's prophetically announcing, prophetically, that there is not one piece of the culture that I am going to leave on the ground. Y'all don't, y'all don't get me today, and that's okay. Psalm 139, and I'm just playing. I know some of y'all just think about this stuff. I just, you know, just like messing with y'all. So somebody got mad the other day. I say that sometimes, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, but I'm not. Psalm 139. Now, ready? This is, you want to know about you? This is what God thinks about you. Psalm 139. Lord, this is David. You know everything there is to know about me. You perceive, but before the cross, David writes this. You perceive every moment of my heart and soul. You understand my every thought before it enters my mind. You are so intimately aware of me, Lord. You read my heart like an open book. You know all the words I'm about to speak before I ever start a sentence. You know every step I will take before my journey even begins. You've gone into my future to prepare the way, and in kindness you follow behind me to spare me from the harm of my past. Some of you are plagued by your past, and Jesus is trying to go back here and release you from it. Let it go. You've gone into my future. You follow behind me in my past. This is too wonderful and deep for me and incomprehensible. Your understanding of me brings me wonder and strength. Where could I go from your spirit? You ready for this? You ready for this? Are y'all good? Okay, here we go. Here we go. Where could I go from your spirit? This is David, not me. If I go to heaven, you're there. Awesome. If I go down to the realm of the dead, you're there too. Huh? (laughs) Right? I'm just quoting. Just quoting. Somebody's going to call me a heretic for that. Well, start reading the verse of the day. Um... Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the realm of the dead, you're there too. If I fly with wings into the shining dawn, you're there. If I fly into the radiant sunset, you're there. Do you hear any separation in this? Even in the realm of the dead. If I go, you're there. What what is this saying? Wherever I go, your hand will guide me. Your strength will empower me. It's impossible to disappear from you or to ask the darkness to hide me for your presence is everywhere bringing light into my night. Lord, help me right now. It's impossible to disappear from you. There is no such thing as darkness with you. The night to you is as bright as the day. There's no difference between the two. You formed my innermost being. You shaped my delicate 
inside and my intricate outside and wove them together all in my mother's womb. I thank you, God, for making me mysteriously complex. Everything you do is marvelously breathtaking. It amazes me to think about it, how thoroughly you know me. You formed every bone when you created me in the secret place, carefully, skillfully shaping me from nothing to something. You saw who you created me to be before I became me. Before I'd ever seen the light of day, the number of days you planned for me were already recorded in your book. Listen to this. Every single moment you are thinking of me. How precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in your every thought. Your desires toward me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. When I awake in the morning, you're still with me. And then he talks about all of his enemies that he's facing right there. That, I mean, Ephesians 1, you were created and chosen in love before the foundations of the earth. That's what Ephesians says. Got to get this out of my way. It, you ready for this? It is not your misplacement that identifies you as religion has said. It is what he called you before you ever took a breath that identifies you. One more time, just so you can get an amen. I'll give you an opportunity to throw it in there. It is not your misplacement that identifies you. The father not one time calls the son prodigal. We call the son prodigal. The father never calls him anything but son. Some of us have walked around our whole lives feeling the weight of Yahweh calling us a prodigal, calling us what we've done. He's never done that. Religion has. Yahweh's never called you anything but son or daughter. He tells Jeremiah, this has become one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. He tells Jeremiah, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I intimately knew you. I've, I've wept over that, y'all. How, how do we believe that our lives have no purpose whatsoever or that God was ready to smite us with a lightning bolt from 10 billion miles out in space because he hated us so much? And he hated us because of our sin. One problem, Paul says Jesus became sin. To prove to us it wasn't our sin that changed his heart, it was what he determined before you and I ever took a breath that made the decision of the incarnation to win you back and realign your thoughts to agree with what God has always thought about you from the very beginning, no matter what you've done. God did not need to be convinced to come get you when you ran. It's you and I that need to be convinced that He so desires you join with union of Father, Son, and Spirit that He will seek until He finds. It was not God that had to be convinced to come save us. It's us that need to be convinced that no matter what we've ever done, He made the decision before you were born. 
when the Trinity decided to spin you out of the union, when they made that decision and Adam became flesh and Eve became flesh, when that happened, there was a conversation in the Trinity before even a breath that said, we're probably going to have to reconcile them. We're giving them so much authority to be like us that we're probably going to have to redeem that later. And all three in unison, I can't prove it, you can't disprove it. All three in unison said, let's go. Let us make man in our image. Knowing full well the price that was going to have to be paid to uphold that. When God created you and I in his image, he took on the responsibility of keeping us in the image, not us. We did not bring ourselves to life. He created us in Christ. Therefore, if he is the author, he is the authority. If he's the authority, only one person can affect a situation, and it's the one in authority. You, as much as you're a part of this church, could not make a decision to, for example, buy a building on behalf of our church because you don't have that authority. But our leadership board could make that authority, could make that decision because they have the authority. You with me? For us to believe that any of our actions could change the idea that God had about us from the very beginning is a very, very, very wrong way of thinking. We don't have the authority to do that. Thank God. Instead, while we were running, thinking we were running into a reality of our own making, all we were doing was running in circles in Christ. He knew where we were every single step. And at the right moment, when all of our fall reached its climax, he became that fall and killed it forever. Let me, say, let me, let me just like, let me just, a little bit more, a little bit more. Y'all good? It's only 11. So we're going to do worship, I promise you. Uh, thanks, Brandon. So it's Father's Day. I do whatever I want, right? So um, let me say, God, you ready for this? You ready for this? God did not die at the hands of God. Jesus did not die at the hands of the Father. It was not the Father that killed the Son. Well, Josh, what about Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? I'm so glad you asked, okay? God did not forsake the Son. So what was Jesus saying? Let me, let me pull this up in mind. I wasn't planning on talking about this today, but I just feel it. So here we go. Um, I gotta search it. <laughs> I gotta search it out though. Um, on my phone. So Jesus says this, and uh, I did it in my Evernote. Do y'all have problems with Evernote? I literally can never find anything. Okay, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. <clears throat> um, Psalm twenty-two. Yeah. Okay. Just making sure I had the right Psalm in my mind. So, so when Jesus is on the cross, Matthew and Mark. Um, I believe actually all the Gospels, don't quote me on that, I believe all the Gospels mention Jesus saying this. Okay? When Jesus is dying on the cross, number one, he can barely breathe. This dude's been beaten to a pulp, right? So he can barely breathe. But in the Hebrew, you ready for, like, so in the Hebrew, they did not have the printing press. In this time, there was no printing press. Also, there were no numbers in their Bibles, Okay? Some people are very shocked by this right now. It was like, like John was writing, okay, John, number one, number two. Like, no, 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 that's, that's super helpful. There were no numbers are not inspired text, okay? 
So there wasn't a printing press, and there were no numbers. So when the Psalms, which was their, I would argue, outside of the Torah, the most highly held with honor set of Scripture, with the Psalms, they memorized the Psalms by Psalm. There wasn't like Psalm 1, verse 1, or whatever. It was just Psalms. In the Hebrew, because they didn't have the printing press, a way of teaching, one of the ways of teaching, would be, and I do this sometimes, and y'all don't catch it, but if I came in the room, and I'm preaching a message, and all of a sudden I say, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, and pause. What I'm doing is I'm triggering Psalm 23 in your mind, and when that happens, typically, you start going down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the path. You know what I'm saying? So it's a trigger for you to bring back to memory the psalm. In Hebrew, that was this. So when Jesus is on the cross, breathless, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And stops. We take that and say, See there? God forsaked him. He's quoting Psalm 22. So here's the psalm. When he said that, every single person in the audience would have said, oh, that's, that's that psalm. And they would have started recalling it to their mind. Because the gospel, it wasn't written, it was all recited. Here's what Psalm 22 says. God, my God, why would you abandon me now? Or forsake, why have you forsaken me? Why do you remain distant, refusing to answer my tearful cries in the day? And my desperate cries for you to help at night. I can't stop sobbing. Where are you, my God? Yet, I know that you are most holy. It's indisputable. You are God enthroned, surrounded with songs, living among the shouts of praise. Your princely people. Our father's faith was in you through the generations they trusted and believed in you. Every time they cried out in their despair, you were faithful to deliver them. But look at me now. I'm a woeful worm. I'm crushed. I'm bleeding crimson. I don't even look like a man anymore. I've been abused. I've been mocked. I've been all this stuff. And they're all saying, is this the one who trusted in God? Is this the one who claims God is pleased with him? Let's see if God will come through and rescue them or rescue you. Lord, you delivered me safely from my mother's womb. You are the one who cared for me since I was a baby. Since the day I was born, I've been placed in your custody. You cradled me throughout my days. I've trusted in you, and you've always been my God, so don't leave me now. Stay close. For trouble is all around me, and there's no one else to help me. I'm surrounded by violent foes. Mighty forces of evil are swirling around me. Curses pour from their mouth. Sounds like the cross, right? I'm completely exhausted. I've been spent. Every joint in my body has been pulled apart. My courage has vanished. My inward parts have melted away. I'm thirsty. My tongue sticks. They have pierced my hands. And he's walking through all this stuff that they've done. Give me back my life. Save me from the violent death. For my precious, uh, save my precious one and only from the power of those demons. Save me from all the power from this roaring lion. I will praise your name before all my brothers. As my people gather, I will praise, your, praise you in the midst. Lovers of Yahweh, praise him. And then it keeps going, and then he says this. Then he says this. He says, From the four corners of the earth, the peoples, peoples of the world will remember and return to the Lord. Every nation will come to worship, for the Lord is king of all. There they are. They're worshiping the wealthy. He's looking ahead after this. Uh, the wealthy of this world will feast in fellowship with him right alongside the humble of heart, bowing down. They will all come and worship the worthy king. His spiritual seed shall serve them, future generations, his generations yet to be born, and they will declare, it is finished. That's Psalm 22. 
Here's what David wrote in Psalm 22. The reason that David wrote this psalm was because he was on the run. He was in a dark place and felt like the Lord had forsaken him. But the reason that he's writing this out is to remind himself that even though it feels like that in the moment, he has not forsaken me because he's going to do this out of this. He's going to bring this out of this. He's going to bring this out of this. He's going to save this. And so David is reminding himself that even though I feel distant from God, Yahweh is ever present in this moment, redeeming all of this to be used for his glory. So for us to say that Jesus is on the cross saying, God, where, have you, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And then he dies like God has turned his back on him. No, the Lord is saying, hey, I'm dying right now, and it feels like I'm being crushed because I'm carrying your fall. But just so you know what all of this is, I want you to remember how this ends. And then the psalm ends in the same way that he ends, it is finished. See, see, like this is what I'm talking about, that we have created this theology that Jesus was beaten to death. And the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Who is God? Plural, the Trinity. That Father, Son, and Spirit was in Christ reconciling the world, the cosmos, to himself. Listen, I know this doesn't mean a lot to y'all. This means everything to me right now. This means every single thing to me. That God did not have to be convinced to get you when you ran. That we need to be convinced that he came and got us because he wanted us. We were never enemies, and we were never separated. We were confused. That's the best way I know how to describe it. We thought we were what we were not. Our world today is no different. Jesus reconciled all to himself. To tell the world salvation comes through behavior is not the gospel. You ready for this? To tell a confused world the answer to their confusion is the gospel. Y'all can come in if, y'all, if that's what you're waiting for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on in. Come on in. I saw, I saw people peeking through the window, and I was like, yo, what's going on? So, hey, guys, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. <clears throat> this is the only, ready? This is the only possible This is only possible, excuse me, if Jesus died for all and humanity's identity has been determined. Now again, I'm not talking about God taking a big hand and sweeping everybody in. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about everybody has been reconciled. Our job is to, what Paul says, preach the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled the world to himself. Our job is to wake the world up to the fact that he reconciled them to himself. Do you, see, do you see what I'm saying? How is that different from what we do? What we do is we tell the world, if you do this, you get this. But the gospel says, you need to wake up to the fact you've already got it. That's different. One of those, one of those is based on your actions. The other is based on a predetermined identity that you need to wake up to. So it's the equivalent of Veda running away from home and being gone for 50 years, forgetting everything about me and Jordan, but then she's coming home. She doesn't know me and Jordan from a hill of beans at that point. Our job is not to make her our daughter. She's our daughter. Our job is to convince her that she's forgotten that she's our daughter. This, this is what we're doing. 
John 1, if all things were made through him, it's literally impossible to exist apart from him. Existence itself is defined in him. You, if you and I exist, we're in him. If we're not in him, we don't exist. All things exist in him. That's what John says. So if you're breathing, you're in him. And even if you're not, if I go to the realm of the dead, he's there. All things are in him. Where do, listen, where do, we get, where do we get our ideas about heaven and hell? We get our ideas about heaven from Plato, and we get our ideas about hell from Dante. Dante's Inferno. The two, that's the two where we get our ideas of heaven and hell. Heaven and hell are real places. But Lord, if we take our ideas of what those things are from Greek philosophers, we're going to be way off. If you go to Jesus and start talking about heaven, he's going to say, hold up, hold up, hold up. Heaven's great. My mind is on here. Heaven is nothing but a prototype for what this is going to be. That's it. So when you die, you will go to heaven. But you better believe you ain't going to stay there. Heaven's coming here. Heaven is the shape of what this world is being currently formed into. On earth as it is in heaven is what he's talking about. So, so the relationship that we have with the Father in heaven is what we're designed to have with the Father here. On earth as it is in heaven. We've made on earth as it is in heaven about miracles. And, I, and miracles are included. Sure. But, but dear Lord... Why stop there? Well, brother, we need on earth as it is in heaven. Absolutely, absolutely. The first part of you being on earth as it is in heaven is you seeing yourself as you would if you were in heaven. In heaven, I guarantee you, nobody's walking around with stains. Nobody's walking around having to convince themselves that they're good. Nobody's having to walk around convince themselves to be happy. Nobody's walking around convincing themselves, man, I, man, I, just, I just don't know about what they said over there. They said something about me that I just don't agree with. Nobody's doing that. On earth as it is in heaven. Do you, do you, all right, like, you'll, they will know your mind by your unity. That's what Jesus said. They'll know your mind by your unity. Here's what we have today. In the name of the power of the Holy Spirit, people dividing churches left and right and disunity all over the place. And we call it your kingdom come. And we call it following our destiny and calling. What we're doing is demolishing the kingdom in the name of whatever kingdom we have built up in our heads. If it doesn't end in unity, it is of the devil. Let me say this one more time just to make real prophetic, bold statement. If it divides, and what I'm not talking about is talking about like what I just talked about, reform, reform thinking, is heresy. That's a whole other thing. But Paul said, if somebody among you causes division, you give them one more, in 2 Timothy, you give them one more chance. If they cause division again, you are to have nothing to do with them. That's what Paul says. What is he saying? He's saying this thing will be known by unity. It will not be known by whoever's right in their truth. We have over 400,000 denominations in the world today of the same church. And they all divided because they disagreed on something that was probably really insignificant. They'll know your mind by your unity, which is why nobody knows who he is. We were called. You know, what, you know what Paul says? Paul says we are the body, the one body, where Christ is the head. Here's the problem. we got 400,000 bodies walking around. None of them are the real body. Because the real body would look like one. So our job is to be so convinced of the love of God that we start loving our neighbors as ourselves. 
And then once we love our neighbors as ourselves, we transition to loving our enemies. That'll take a few hundred years. And once we figure it out, I mean, let's just be real. But if we got, hey, but if we got time, that's okay. I'm okay with that. I'm okay for this taking years. I'm, I'm okay for this taking centuries. I believe we got time. I don't think Jesus cares about what date he's coming back. All he cares about is him coming back to the right bride. You know what bride he's coming back for? The Bible says pure and spotless. Not pure and divided. Or I should say pure divided. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He ain't coming back for a divided bride. He's coming back for a body, one. And I think the first thing is for us in the West, particularly, to get our ideology about God correct. Y'all with me? Y'all with me? Okay. His life is the light to, I'm almost done, to humanity. Right, Angela? (laughs) His life is light to humanity. It shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. You hear this? Jesus climbs into our darkness shines a light, and the darkness can't, overcome, can't comprehend it. Now, this is where I'm going to end. This is where I'm going to end. Lord, i got so much left. So much left. But I know y'all got to get to Cracker Barrel, so. If, uh, Matt, go ahead and come up here. I could do this all day. If, 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 if we were there, I'd say, y'all come back in a few hours. We'll just finish it up. But, but uh, y'all got stuff, stuff going on. Um, when Jesus comes, somebody asked the question recently, and I don't even remember where this was. I don't think it was anybody here. But anyway, I heard this question recently. Why did Jesus have to die the way that he died? Think about this. Why couldn't Jesus have, like, you know, said 33 years, and heart attack, die, or something. I mean, like it, Jesus, all he had to do was die, right? Is it right? <laughs> okay. So, so Jesus was born. Why couldn't, so there was a decree made to kill all the babies when Jesus was born in the area. Jesus, why couldn't they just kill Jesus as the baby? Get it over with, a few months, gone. Humanity's rescued. But Jesus lived 33 years. The lifespan average in that day was about 34 years. So Jesus lived the equivalent to somebody living 75, 80 years, whatever. He lived a whole life, okay? So he lived 33 years. And in that 33 years, he was mocked. He was called the devil. He was um, tempted with every kind of evil. He was tempted with everything. He uh, went out into the wilderness and was tempted to go ahead and trade uh, as long as he would bow down to the enemy the enemy would give him all the kingdoms of the, did he not come for the kingdoms of the world and the enemy says you know what you came here for the kingdoms of the world I'll just give them to you just bow down to me so, so Jesus goes through 33 years of being ridiculed somebody betraying him people plotting to kill him his whole life he preaches the very word of God that this whole culture had bought into or thought they bought into, a version of it, and they deny him being the word of God that they read every single day or they hear every single day. So he goes through this 33 years. Then he goes to the cross. And while he's on the cross, he is beaten to a pulp. I mean, this is Jesus. This is God. God, the one who said, 
let us make man in our image is now being beat to death by the men he made in his image. Being slaughtered, beaten, and beaten, and beaten, and placed on a cross with a sign. Here's the king of the Jews. Here he is. And while he's on that cross, he looks at a thief, and the thief says, and I'm summarizing, the thief says, I know who you are. Would you just remember me? And he says, I'm not just going to remember you. You're going to be with me. Thief. Beaten. Why did Jesus have to die the way that he died? On the cross, he was in the darkest of the darkest of the dark in humanity. Spitting on him, cursing him, beating him. This ain't the son of God. He went into the darkest of the dark so that you and I would have zero excuse to not be in the light. This is what he says. He says, in him was life and that life was light to all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. If we turned off, and I almost did this today, but if we turned off all the lights in here and it was dark, you would see two things. You would see the way outside and darkness inside. If I then took my light and did this in a dark room, all of a sudden you'd be able to see pretty much everything. It'd be real dim, but you'd be able to see everything, right? And that's because darkness has no ontological existence. I've taught this before. Like scientifically, darkness does not exist. Darkness is nothing but a measurement of light. So Jesus enters into the darkest of humanity and flips the lights on. so that there is now no excuse for us to live in a dark. Because guess what? Darkness does not exist. Those living in a mindset of darkness absolutely exist. But they're not chained to Adam anymore. They're chained to a lie of who they really are. And we have been so focused on freeing people from an Adam and the reason we have failed 100% of the time is because Adam doesn't exist. You can't free people from something that they're not enslaved to. What does exist is a lie about who they are. This is what we're seeing all in our culture rampant today. No one knows who they are. And it's because we were the ones that were supposed to tell them who they are. And all we've told them is that they're messed up because of what they've done. Now, let me bring it back to you. How many of you, if you're being honest, believe this about yourself, no matter how long you've been in this room? The word dwelling in us, tabernacling in us, is Luke 15, or rather, Luke 15 is him dwelling in us. We bought into the delusion at the fall and the Trinity, refusing to exist without us in their dance, makes its dwelling place in us 
so that God could find us in our delusion and enlighten it to the point that we awaken to who we have always been. This is not about people with good morals. This is about us daring to ask the question of what could happen if we proceeded in Christianity as if there was never a fall. People hate when I say stuff like that in the West. Did Jesus undo the fall? Yes? Yes. Okay? Therefore, for us to proceed as if we are enslaved to a fall is delusional. We need to live our life as if the bite of the fruit never happened because we've been reconciled in Christ. Paul saying that God reconciled the earth to himself, keeping no record of their wrongs. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. I I went back, Lord, I went back and listened to some of my sermons in the past before I was given this revelation. And I could feel myself in my voice. Some of these are not on our podcast. Back in the theater and stuff. I could feel, I could see in my voice a man, a boy to the father that was searching and searching and searching for this. And for years I've been this close. And for years you and I have been this close. But there was something in the inside of me that kicked back and said, this cannot be. I'm totally okay with believing that the cross was God beating up Jesus so I wouldn't have to be beat up. I'm totally fine with that. I get that logic. What I have not been okay with is looking at the cross and seeing a father saying, this is what I will do to get you back. Not this is what I'm doing, but you deserve it. So I'm doing it instead. He's saying this is what I would do to get you back no matter how far you've run and no matter what you have wasted. I never allowed myself to see that. I got this close in Song of Songs. I got this close until about a month ago and the Lord whispered to me and said, why do you believe that Adam's fall affected all of humanity, but my obedience only affects a handful? And when he said that, you know my response was initially? I can't think that. And oh man, and I heard the Holy Spirit whisper, If you'll go with me, I'm going to take you on a journey. And on the other side of this journey, you'll never question who you are ever again. During that time, I'm going to just be very vulnerable with you. During that time, we had more people leave our church in that season than have ever left our church in a season. 
During that time, I felt more backlash than I have ever gotten in my life. I've been called demon. I've been called liar. I've been called everything in the book. During this time, I have felt and experienced more betrayal than I've ever felt in my life. Most of it's made up in my head. Some of it's not. But I have lived with a fear of man my whole life. I don't know where it came from. My parents are here. I've got great parents. Most people have fear of man because they have parent issues. I don't. So I don't know where it came from. But my whole life, I've just feared letting people down. And I see it a little bit in Veda sometimes. And we're working to make sure that that is not her story. But I fear letting people down. And the reason I feared letting people down is at the root of it, I thought I let him down. And on this journey, Holy Spirit begins to whisper to me, you never let me down. This wasn't about you letting me down. This was about me getting you out of your dark. The Ruach spirit in the Old Testament, Ruach is a feminine word. I said this last week. If you don't like that, I can't rewrite Hebrew. So Ruach is a feminine word. In the West, we made the Godhead male. The father is male. The son is male. Ruach is feminine. That's the spirit. That's just Hebrew. That's not me. That's Hebrew. And Aramaic in the New Testament is also the same way. And my whole life, I mean, think about this. I saw, I saw the Holy Spirit as showing up in a room ready to kick tail and take names. <laughs> Right? Like you showed up, you showed up a sinner, we gonna knock it out of you. You know? I always thought like, man, I'm gonna reach the pinnacle of ministry when I can like push somebody and they just push out. Like that's when I've made it. You know what I'm saying? Like literally, that's what you know, and that's not a bad thing. It's just like, you know, I love laying out in the spirit. Um, I wanted to lay people out in the spirit, but uh, or sometimes not in the spirit. But anyway, I just want to lay people out. But um, but anyway, and through this, I mean the Holy Spirit, this journey. Instead was, I'm not, I'm not coming here. And I, I think I said this Tuesday or Sunday or at some point. But I'm not coming here to give you a fire that makes you speak in other languages. You'll, you'll speak in other languages. Primarily the language I'm here to teach you is the language of romance and love and a dance. I heard the, one morning I heard the Holy Spirit whisper, I'm not here to teach you theology. I'm here to teach you how to dance. And I said, I don't want to dance. He said, I'm not talking about that dance. I'm talking about the dance you were designed for. I'm talking about the spin. Jesus did not care what people thought about him because he didn't exist in an outward-facing spin. He existed in an inward-facing spin. And all he heard his entire existence, eternity past, eternity future, was you, 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 you in the spin. What he's inviting us into is the same spin where we're not looking at our culture for our identity. We're looking at him for our identity. And when we look at him, we see a mirror into who we actually look like. But the Holy Spirit took me on this journey and is taking me on this journey. And I wrote this just to finish up. It's illegal, and I, and I just mentioned this earlier, but it's, it's illegal to believe 
that Adam's bite demolished all of mankind. Yet Christ's death and resurrection simply gave us a better way to deal with our fallen state. I didn't choose for Adam and Eve to fall. And you didn't either. They fell and we inherited the fall. Right? Likewise, I did not choose to crucify Christ. But because of his crucifixion, we inherited his crucifixion. So I didn't earn the fall and I didn't earn the crucifixion. Yet now we are in Christ. 100% of our issues come from separation. Worship people, y'all come up here. Y'all come up here. Until he's hit. Boom, there you are. 100% of our issues come from separation. The idea. Why? Because it is the delusion. Separation is the delusion. It's not sin or shame. It includes sin or shame, but it is separation. The idea popular in us today that we have the power to separate ourselves from God. Romans 8 says, and I'm going to finish with this. This is what Romans 8 says. We, got the power, we think we have the power or we had the power to separate ourselves from God. But this is what Paul says to correct this thinking in the Romans who had the Roman law and lived under the Roman law. He says this. I live with the confidence that there is nothing in the universe that has the power to separate us from God's love. I'm convinced with this, that this love will triumph over death, life's troubles, fallen angels, dark rulers in the heavens. There is nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken his love. There is no power above us or beneath us, no power that could ever be found in the universe that can distance us from God's passionate love, which is lavished upon us through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one. This is what he says. God so loved us that even in our delusion, we, where we were, uh, he said, I'm coming to the place. Let me rephrase this. God so loved us that even in our delusion, which is where we were, even in our delusion, he made the decision to become us and awaken what was once in a delusion. Here's what I've been calling this lately. I've been calling this lost in union. I think I'm going to coin this phrase and maybe write a book on it. I'm just kidding. We were lost in union. On this side of the cross, and the world is lost in union. This brings a lot of hope to family members that we think may not ever get it. We've been trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and trying, and they just don't seem to get it. But the hope that I have is that Jesus says, I seek until I find. Therefore, me being in that image, I'm going to live seeking until I find. In Luke 15, the lost sheep, the coin, and the son were always the shepherd's sheep, the woman's coin, and the father's son. Always. Last page, I made it. Whose they were was never in question. Here's where we're going to end going into worship. Okay? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son were always, through the whole story, the shepherd's sheep, the woman's coin, and the father's son. Amen. Whose they were was never in question. What they were 
where, excuse me, what they were when they were in their lost state was lost. But even them being lost was guided by the fact that their identity was predetermined. You don't lose something you don't own. Amen? I can't lose something. This is my pen. I just got it yesterday and I love it. But this is my pen. If I lost my pen, it would be lost by me because it's mine. If I took Mackenzie's purse and threw it somewhere, I could not say I have lost my purse because I don't own it. So what we are prophetically declaring over the lost is that their identity has been determined. We are here as a signpost to say, this is home, this is where you are. I believe in predestination. I believe all are predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. I'm going to end with this. The Trinity is in Luke 15. In fact, the Trinity is all throughout your Bible, if you'll see it, all throughout. Every time you see the number three, process that through the Trinity and see what comes out on the other end. In Trinity, Luke 15, there's a shepherd. What does Jesus say? I'm the shepherd. Luke 15, there's a shepherd. In Luke 15, there is a woman who lost her coin. What did I say earlier? What is Ruach? Feminine. So Holy Spirit. And then there's a father who goes to get his son. The Trinity is present through the whole thing. Luke 15 is Jesus telling us the Trinity will seek until it finds. The shepherd's going to find his sheep. The Spirit's going to find its image. That's what the coin was. The coin never lost its image, and it never lost its value. So the shepherd's going to find its sheep. The Spirit's going to find the image and the value within every single person, and the Father's going to come and bring them home. (laughs) One more more time, one more time, one more time. The shepherd's going to seek until he finds his sheep. The Spirit's going to convince you that your identity and your value never changed. And the Father's going to bring you home. In all of those stories, the the identity never changes. The value never changes. In fact, I would maybe argue the value goes up. How many of you lose something and then when you find it, you start honoring this thing in a way you never honored it before? Right? Right? I mean, I, that's what I would argue. We think a lot, man, you're going to barely make it in. No, when you make it in, you're going to be seen in a way you never were saw before. That's how he redeems stuff. You don't make it in by the skin of your teeth. So we're going to end. I'm done. That's all my notes. Oh, Josh, please keep going. Um, <laughs> but... As we, as we finish, I, I felt the Lord say we need to do two things while we worship. Um, ironically, Matt, thanks Matt for stepping in and kind of helping plan these songs today. But um, we're doing I Am Loved and what's the second one? Um, when I Lock Eyes With You. Perfect. Um, and we're going to sing these songs. But as we sing these, I felt the Lord, the Holy Spirit say, say two things. Number one, um, if you need to forgive 
don't know why this has nothing to do with a lot of stuff, but if you're carrying unforgiveness in your life for anybody, especially in this room, but anybody else, then that needs to be dealt with today. Because we cannot see the world like we're designed to see the world if we still see our enemies as trash. Jesus, before he gave them the command to love other people as he has loved them, first gave them the command to love their enemies. You can't love people like Christ loved you until you learn to love your enemies. So forgiveness, number one. But number two, I felt led to pray over this. There's a lot of you in this room, and y'all can bring your mics in place if you want to. I'll get out of y'all's way. There's a lot of people in this room, I think, that maybe have father issues. And y'all know what I'm saying. And we, uh, we use that phrase a good bit in our culture um, because our culture lacks fathers. And I was telling, um, who was I telling this this week? Um, I think it was one of my spiritual, it was one of my spiritual fathers. Um, I can't relate to father issues because I have a great dad. So I like, it's, it's really difficult for me to relate to um, people who have father issues. It just is for me. Having said that, a lot of you have a hard time seeing Abba as father because of what your earthly dad has been to you. Today's Father's Day, and I think the Lord just wants to do some surgery in that. I think the Lord wants to tune up some stuff that Maybe, maybe you, as the son or daughter, are the one who's going to make them realize that they are a son or daughter because of how you respond to them, number one. But number two, number two, if that's the case for you, the Lord wants to redeem how you see Abbahood, fatherhood, despite what you've seen in an earthly father. And I think that's what he wants to do in this time. And... um. So these guys are going to sing. Y'all just stand. We're going to end in worship, and then we'll give at the end. So um, if you don't have to leave, don't leave. But this is the best part. You guys lead us.